How much of my mother has my mother left in me? How much of my love will be insane to some degree? And what about this feeling that I'm never good enough? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? How much of my father am I destined to become? Will I dim the lights inside me just to satisfy someone? Will I let this woman kill me or do away with jealous love? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? I can feel the love I want. I can feel the love I need. But it's never going to come the way I am. Could I change it if I wanted? Can I rise above the flood? Will it wash out in the water? Or is it always in the blood? Those lyrics should disturb us. And here's why. Well, I'll just back up for a second. The first time I heard John Mayer sing these words, I believe it was live in concert, I'm not sure. This is his song called In the Blood. My heart just broke. And this is why those words should disturb us. For the first 26 years of my life, I felt that way too. I thought that I had to do something else, be someone else to find the love that I need. And it was suffocating. Suffocating. And you see, we all have a deep need inside of us to be loved. And many times we will do anything that it takes to meet that need. Anything. Unfortunately, what we do to try to win the affection and the approval of others can destroy us. I came across a great explanation of this on Facebook this week. One of our uh, former Bayou people who has now moved to another city shared this, and uh, I want to share it with you. He he wrote something along these lines. I've edited it just a little bit. What a great midweek service tonight at church. Powerful message with profound truths by my pastor. Here are just a couple of nuggets from the message. Two needs that every person has, attachment and authenticity. Attachment and authenticity. To be loved and to be known. The two needs were designed to be in sync with each other, but too many times life makes us choose one or the other. Attachment will always win over authenticity. This means if we're honest and we think someone might reject us, then we'll always choose to hide part or all of the truth. We won't be who we really are. And this is destructive behavior. Are y'all tracking with that? Does that make sense? You see, what this gets at is that we people please because we want to be loved. We are afraid that others will reject us if they find out who we really are and so we fake it. We just put on a mask and fake it. And this is nothing but what I would describe as an unhealthy fear of man. And left to itself, the fear of man will not just eat our lunch, it will eat us alive. It'll eat us alive. In 
And so the question that we must ask is, is there anything that we can do about it? Can we overcome the unhealthy fear of man? Turn with me to the book of Acts. We're gonna be in chapter five today. Or you can scroll on your iPhone, your Android, whatever you have. If you brought a copy of an actual scroll this morning, bonus points for you. We needed a little laugh after that intro, didn't we? Well, my name is Jeremiah Meadows, and I have the honor of being the community group's pastor here. And this fall, we've been looking at the book of Acts. And last week in chapter four, we saw Peter and John, just ordinary men, shock the Jewish leaders with their boldness. It was so shocking that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that line. Love it. Today in Acts chapter five, we're going to find out that some crazy stuff happened in the church. The book of Acts is filled with some crazy stuff, isn't it? It's awesome. But as we, as we look at this, we're gonna see that that crazy stuff that happened is both good and bad. There's a mixture of both. And we're gonna discover along the way if we can overcome our unhealthy fear of man. But before we do that, I wanna pray and ask God to meet with us today. Father, we confess this morning that Jesus is worthy of his name as we just sung. As we've sung about this morning, the reality is that right now and for all of eternity, he is seated on the throne and he is worshiped by everyone in heaven. Angels, saints, adore him. And right now you invite us to enter in to the worship of heaven as we open your word. We wanna see Jesus. That's what we need. We don't need my wisdom. We need to see your son, our savior. So we ask that you would give us Jesus, help us behold him in all of his glory and beauty this morning. We pray this in his name, amen. All right, so to pick up Acts Uh, five, we need to kind of back up to the end of Acts chapter four to really kind of get the context. So we're going to pick it up in verse 32 of chapter four. Luke writes this, he says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So at this point, the church is rocking and rolling. They are so united that they are sharing everything they have in order to meet one another's needs. And Luke gives us an example of that by telling us about how Barnabas sells a field and lays the money at the apostles' feet. I mean, this is beautiful stuff. This is amazing Amazing. What's gonna happen as we get into chapter five? Look at verses one through six. 
But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Whoa, what a quick turn of events. I mean, did you follow? Like, it's just right on the heels of Barnabas. And it's meant to be read together. And that's why we read both sections. One minute, Barnabas is crushing it. The next minute, Ananias is botching it. And so Peter rebukes him. And if you followed along, according to Peter, Satan had twisted Ananias's heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back of some of his money, even though it was all his to do whatever he wanted with in the first place. And to make it absolutely clear, Peter doubles down. Twice we read about how Ananias contrived this deed in his heart and he lied to God. Do you understand what's going on here? Twice we are told that Ananias has an unclean heart and twice we are told that he lied to God. Ananias drops dead before he can give his defense. Those who heard are filled with great fear and Ananias is carried out and buried. Look at verses seven through 11 with me. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Completely unaware, though it's been three hours, Sapphira comes in and Peter asks her about the sale of the price the, the price uh, for the land, and gives her a chance to come clean. But she lies straight to his face. And Peter accuses her of something similar, only this time he says that they agreed to test the spirit of the Lord. And after Peter fills her in on her husband's face, fate, Sapphira dies the exact same way. And this time we're told that great fear came upon the church and those who heard. This passage is downright terrifying. If we don't read it that way, we are not awake or our brains are not functioning. What in the world is happening here? Let me give you my understanding. Now, this is not inspired, you know, inerrant word of God, but here's what I think is going on here. Ananias and Sapphira likely saw what Barnabas did, they probably saw the praise and the honor and the, the fanfare that erupted in the church over what, what Barnabas had done. 
And they wanted some of that for themselves. They craved it. Motivated by an unhealthy fear of man, they wanted approval and attachment of others. And they hatched this wicked plan because they cared more about what other people thought of them than what God thought of them. They were more concerned with appearing righteous than being righteous. They were people pleasers through and through. That's why they did this. But why in the world did they drop dead for it? Well, I don't have a full explanation for this, but the scriptures make it very, very clear that the wages of sin is death for anyone and everyone. And here's what I think happened. I think Ananias and Sapphira, well, the scripture tells us, Peter makes it very clear that they sinned. I think they just met their fate immediately rather than at the end of their life like anybody else who dies in their sin. And I don't know exactly why this happened at this time in this way, but I think it was a way for God to make it very, very clear that even though there was this new era where the Spirit was filling his people, those who followed Jesus, they still had to take God seriously. And they still had to live under his authority, under his rule and reign. And we need to remember that. This is kind of a sidebar. Just because we live in the era of grace does not mean there are not consequences for our sin. Thankfully, Jesus took the wrath, but there are still consequences. But what, what happened here is they dropped dead because they had died in their sin. They were, they were in their sin. They did not possess true faith. They did not possess true honor for God, no righteousness. And so they dropped dead before they could give a defense. And even the church was filled with fear. So if you and I want to overcome our unhealthy fear of man, what I would submit to you in light of this first part of the chapter is that we must examine the motives of our hearts. We need to examine the motives of our hearts. Before we get all judgy McJudge face on Ananias and Sapphira, you and I do the same thing that they did. Every single one of us in this room is guilty of the exact same thing. Now you're probably thinking, well, I've never you know, sold a field and lied about the mountain, given it to the church. Hold on a second, let me explain. We've all hatched sinful plans in our hearts that have led us to do wicked things and tell lies. There's not a single person in this room that has never hatched a wicked plan, never done a wicked thing, and never told a lie. Right? <laughs> so just ask yourself some questions. If you're, if you're still not convinced that we are in the same boat with Ananias and Sapphira, be honest as you ask yourself these questions. When is the last time I did something to make me look good in front of others, especially my friends and my brothers and sisters at the church? Or here's another one, just to make you feel a little better. Do I ever care more about what people think of me than what God says about me? Stings a little bit for me. Or here's one more. Do I, what is more important to me? Being righteous or appearing righteous? The deadly reality is that we can appear to have it all together, but God knows our hearts. He sees everything that we do and why we do it. And I bet you didn't come to church this morning expecting to hear a quote from a 90s rapper, but Tupac was right. Only God can judge me. 
and only God can judge you. And the reality is, is that he's going to. Every single person is gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But like Ananias and Sapphira, we're gonna give an account for all that we've done. And eventually, here's what happens. Living for the approval of others will crush and kill us. It really will. This is life or death, friends. The only way we will ever overcome the unhealthy fear of man is by first examining the motives of our hearts. So how's the church going to respond to this? Look at verses 12 through 16 with me. And just, just a little bit of a breather. It gets good. How many, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Man, this passage is like, just like, pendulum swinging, Barnabas crushing it, Ananias and Sapphira being killed, and now the church is booming and busting and healing and people are coming to the Lord. I mean, it's just like back and forth. But Luke tells us that the apostles are doing all kinds of miracles. They're healing people left and right, but the crowds are terrified to join them after the word about Ananias and Sapphira got out. I mean, after all, it's not really a great church growth tactic to uh, say, come to our church where people die instantly for their sins. (laughs) You see, in spite of that, in spite of all the good, the, the, the horrible stuff that has happened, good things are happening. And we read that droves of people. It says exactly here, it says, uh, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. This wasn't like attendance went up. This means conversion, salvation was happening. Right on the heels of this tragedy. Peter is healing so many people that they are dragging people near him just so his shadow will fall on them. What? This is incredible. In spite of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the church kept on moving forward because nothing can stop the risen Jesus and his church. Because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is alive. You see, we can overcome our unhealthy fear of man, but the second thing that it takes is we must take courage in the triumphs of Jesus and his church. Do you remember what Jesus told Peter after he confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew 16? Jesus said these words. This is like, this one, I just, I can never read this one enough. He says, you are Peter. Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Come on. Nothing and no one will ever be able to stop the church. The church is guaranteed to to win. That's what simply put. And this verse has meant a lot to me for a long time. And I think it should mean a lot to every true believer because it means that if we are on Jesus's side, we are guaranteed to win. And for me, as somebody who has chosen to give my livelihood to working as a pastor in the church, I find a lot of encouragement from this. 
Who wouldn't want to be on the team that is guaranteed to win? Who wouldn't want to invest their blood, sweat, and tears, their time and treasure into the only entity that is never going to go under, but on the contrary, will be the only group left standing, the eternal kingdom of the living God? It makes everything else pale in comparison when you read that verse and believe that Jesus is telling the truth. And then you see it happen in the book of Acts. So we can overcome our unhealthy fear of man if we won't be discouraged by the tragedies that we see, but on the contrary, take courage in the triumphs of Jesus and his church. Now, let's look at verses 17 through 21 to find out what happens on the heels of these miracles and the church's expansion. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Again, it's just back and forth, back and forth. Make some progress, then there's attack. You know, it's just, it's never ending. And this time, the Jewish council of the Sadducees, the bad guys that Peter and John ran into last week in chapter 4, arrest the apostles for a second time, but this time they are miraculously released from prison by an angel. The angel tells them to go back into the temple and speak about Jesus, and so they do it. And what's going to happen to them? Look at verse 21. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the next day, when they call for the apostles to be brought in, you know, newsflash, they're not in prison. And as you would guess, they are completely flabbergasted, or as Luke puts it, they are perplexed and wondering what this would come to. understatement. (laughs) But before they can make sense of it all, word comes that the apostles are teaching in the temple. And this time the council doesn't have the guts to arrest them because they're deathly afraid of the people. They didn't want to die. They want to be stoned. And here's what I want to point out in this section. Please don't miss this. Notice the stark contrast that Luke is painting. Don't miss it. On the one hand, the apostles are living with a healthy fear of God unafraid of men, and they are miraculously set free from prison. Tangible evidence of the true freedom that they have in Jesus. On the other, the Jewish council is trying their best to try to control and stamp out Jesus and his church, and they have zero fear of God. And as a result, they are utterly worried and afraid of the people. Tangible evidence of the complete bondage that comes from living with an unhealthy fear of man. Don't miss that. Look at the freedom that fearing God brings. See it. 
We can overcome our unhealthy fear of man as we experience the freedom that comes by fearing God. That's the only way. We're all going to fear something. The question is, who or what will you fear? You don't get to have a choice if you're going to fear. You have a choice about who or what you will fear. We can fear man and live in perpetual turmoil, or we can fear God and experience real freedom. Now, I know some of us think this sounds crazy. If you don't follow Jesus, all of this probably sounds like hogwash. How can freedom be found in fearing God? How in the world can worshiping and submitting myself to him lead to deliverance and delight? I mean, after all, we are hardwired to resist and rebel against God. It is unnatural to want to fear him. Left to ourselves, we won't do it. Because we think we know better than God does and we think we can do his job better than he can. And that's why we don't fear him. But here's the problem. Though we think that doing life our own way, on our own terms, will give us what we want, all it brings is more trouble. Just look at every ounce of your history before you came to faith in Jesus. That's the story of everyone in here's life. I did it my way and it didn't work and I was miserable. Doing it our way just brings more worry, more anxiety, more fear, more destruction. And in the end, like Ananias and Sapphira, it leads straight to death. Straight to death. But God, because God wired the world so that freedom is found in fearing him. In Jesus' upside down kingdom, freedom is found by making ourselves slaves to Jesus. That's how we find freedom. We can overcome our unhealthy fear of man, but we must experience the freedom that comes by fearing God. Now back to the story in Acts. What are the Jewish leaders going to do next? Look at verses 27 through 32 with me. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The council brings them in. Again, the Jewish leaders tell him to stop preaching about Jesus and they try to blame his death or, or and st- to stop trying to blame his death on them. But I love the apostles' response. We must obey God rather than men. There's zero doubt who they fear. Zero doubt. And then they double down and accuse the leaders of killing Jesus once more right after they said to stop doing that and they preach the gospel. The apostles are so certain of God's love for them that they don't need the approval of anyone on earth. Rather than cower in an unhealthy fear of man, the apostles stand firm in the fear of God. And what are these leaders going to do? Look at verses 33 through 39. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, 
Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The Jewish leaders are furious. They want to kill the apostles, but one of their own, Gamaliel, steps in and he brings some perspective. Essentially, his point is that if the apostles are just another deceived group of religious fanatics, this whole thing's going to fizzle out and die, and we don't have anything to worry about it. But if the apostles truly are of God, Gamaliel tells him, there's no way we can stop them. And worse, we might even find ourselves opposing God. This is a powerful moment. God is using somebody who does not follow Jesus to protect his church. It's amazing. But think about it. At this point, if you're the Jewish council and you're filled with rage, but this guy just says that to you, the air in the room is getting really, really thin. What's going to happen? What are they going to do? Look at verses uh, 39 through 42. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Instead of killing the apostles, they gave them a beating, tell them not to talk about Jesus anymore as if that plan is working. These guys are idiots. And then they let them go. But notice the apostles' response. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Do we do that? If I was in that place, would I make the same decision? I sure hope so, but I don't know. And instead of backing down from pe- preaching Jesus, they, they didn't stop. They kept proclaiming that he is the resurrected Messiah, the true and only King. Now, I don't know what about you, but I want to live like that. Every part of my heart wants to be like the apostles. I want to be fearless of man because I am consumed with fear of God. I want to be unwilling to please people because I am convinced that God is pleased with me. And all I want to do is live for the pleasure of King Jesus. That's what I want. And I pray that that's your desire. And here's here's the thing. The good news is we can do that. We can overcome our unhealthy fear of man if we will trust and obey Jesus no matter what. Trust and obey Jesus no matter what. Just like the disciples, we can be so convinced of the gospel that Jesus really did rise out of that tomb, that he really is alive, and that when we trust in him for salvation that he sent his spirit to live in us and we are fully known and fully loved forever. 
when we get a glimpse of this reality that Jesus is the only one that our hearts truly long for, that he is the only true authority and that he gave his life for us, it changes us from the inside out and our unhealthy fear of man melts away in the healthy fear of God. That's what happens. This week, I got to meet one of my heroes in the faith and I'm not gonna say his name because it doesn't matter. But I got to meet him and I didn't care if he, I don't even think he knows my name. I don't even know if I said it. But all I wanted to do was thank him. And what I got to do when I, when I met him is I shared, bear with me here. I shared with him about how a sermon series that he gave back in 2008 changed my life forever. I'll never forget it. I don't remember the exact day, but I know it was in the summer. And I know I was driving on 183, coming right off of O'Connor in Dallas, kind of out near the airport. Most of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Y'all think Dallas is some God-forsaken place. (laughs) But he can move there. God moves there. But as I drove and and left O'Connor and tried to get on the freeway, I had to stop. I had to pull over on the side of the road because I was weeping uncontrollably. And here's why. I was overwhelmed with this simple truth. God doesn't love some future version of me. He loves me as I am right now. And the way I would also put it, this is, this is what really sunk in that day for the first time in my life. God doesn't just love me. He likes me. He delights in me. He is pleased with me because of Jesus in Jesus we are fully known and fully loved by God forever and I don't know where you are I don't know what is going on in your heart today but God knows and like the apostles did with the Jewish council I beg of you I beg of you to see that you don't have to be afraid of man you can live with a healthy fear of God You can choose a different fear. Each and every one of us is a broken rebel who has told God to leave us alone and get out of our lives. That's who we are in the flesh. But in spite of that, God loves you and he loves me so much that he sent his son Jesus to come to the earth as we sung about. In the incarnation, he became a man and he lived every single day, every single moment, with a healthy fear of God. Jesus did that. He's the only one who ever did. And then he obediently and willingly went to the cross, standing in our place as we just sung about, taking on our guilt, taking on our shame for every failure that we've ever done. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day he rose and he is alive and he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God and he is worthy of his name. He is worthy. And here's what I really want you to hear if you hear nothing else today. Jesus knows you, he sees you, and he loves you right where you are. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be somebody else. You can be you and you can... Reach out to him for this grace, for this salvation, believing that in Jesus, you are forgiven, you are fully known, and fully loved. 
And when you do that, what you will see is that unhealthy fear of man will begin to melt away in the consuming fire of God's embrace and your heart will be filled with a healthy fear of God and you will never, ever, ever be the same again. The question is, will you trust and obey Jesus no matter what? Let's pray. God, I I have to believe, Father, I just have to believe that I'm not the only one who has dealt with this unhealthy fear of man, who has believed the lie that I need to do something else or be someone else to receive your love. And I just pray that right now in this place, if there's anybody in this room who is living in that bondage, that you would set them free by the power of the blood of Jesus. I pray that if there are any of us who are in a season where even though we are a child of God, we have been living as if we are orphans. I pray that you would bring us home and that you would embrace us in your love and that it would change our hearts this morning. God, we are living in a situation that is life or death. Rescue us from the unhealthy fear of man. And in its place, give us a healthy fear of you. Help us to trust in Jesus and help us obey him no matter what. We want to be people who fear you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service this morning by uh, having a time of of prayer, and so I want to invite those who are going to help with that to go ahead and come on up. And um, I just want to say, there's there is zero shame in coming forward to get prayer. I just want you to know that you're not judged if you come forward. Actually, in God's eyes, He delights to see that humility in His children, and He will honor it. So if you're living in any bondage to the unhealthy fear of man, will you please get out of your seat and come up here and receive prayer? If you're not a child of God, but you hear his voice saying, come home, you are mine, come forward. Don't leave this place in the bondage of fear of man. Leave this place in the freedom of fearing God. I beg of you, the altar is open.